Our text this morning is Matthew 27, verse 46. Matthew 27 and verse 46. And about the ninth hour, that's three o'clock in the afternoon. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <clears throat> From 9 a.m. until 3 p.m., Jesus hung upon a cross on that first Good Friday. <clears throat> From noon until 3 p.m., and an earthly darkness covered the land. And towards the end of that three-hour period of darkness, that terrifying, what must have been terrifying, terrifying time of darkness. Try and imagine that. Midnight at midday, as Spurgeon put it. And towards the end of that terrifying period of darkness, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so here, we're at Calvary now, we're on Golgotha, that's where we stand this morning, and we're watching, and there are men who are gambling for clothes, and there are passers-by who are wagging their heads, and there are cruel hearts who are pouring out scorn upon those who suffer on the three crosses, especially the one in the middle. And there are soldiers who are doing their cruel deed. But in truth, they all disappear. And we cannot see them and we can no longer hear them when we begin to focus on the middle cross and begin to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ who cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we forget everything else because now what we are observing and what we are witnessing is an awesome sight. And we see God speaking to God and we hear the Son crying out to the Father. And this is sacred ground now. This is sacred ground where Jesus walks alone. And where he is forsaken, when he's forsaken of friends. But more, and almost incomprehensibly, he is forsaken of God. And it's to this mysterious inter-Trinitarian exchange that we turn our thoughts this morning. And I want to try and show you the meaning and the wonder and the implications of forsaken. Let's begin with the meaning of forsaken. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Whatever this moment meant, it was clearly horrific. And yet, astonishingly, the Lord Jesus was determined that he should undergo and endure this moment. We are told that, that earlier on in his ministry, there was a moment when it says that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And even though he knew exactly what would happen, he knew what he would have to endure, he resolutely turned his steps to go to Jerusalem, there to die, and there to come to the moment when he would cry out to God, why have you forsaken me? Horrific though that moment must have been and truly was, he was determined to do it. How extraordinary is that? Well, what was so terrible about this? What was so terrible that he prayed that he might be spared and that it might pass him by? What was so terrible about this that he swept great drops of blood? What was so terrible about this that he cried out to God and asked this poignant question of God? So was it the, the pain of physical torment? Well, you know, he'd already been on the cross for three, four, five hours. It wasn't that. This was something new. This was something different. This was something infinitely beyond the admittedly horrific torment of Crucifixion. This was something beyond our experience and beyond our knowledge and something that we would not know had it not been for divine revelation. We would not know about this. We could never have imagined this. Because what explains this cry is divine punishment. It's something beyond our experience and beyond our knowledge and revelation comes to us and explains to us that this is divine punishment. This is something God the Father was doing to God the Son. You know, the Bible talks about wrath. It talks about anger. It talks about God's wrath. God's wrath is His holy revulsion against that which is a contradiction of His holiness. God is not indifferent when you disobey His commands. God is not nonchalant when you sin against Him. He is not kind, grandfatherly, just saying, oh, tut, tut, it's all well, I'll forget about it. But God is a holy God. And his holy being is angry when his holy character is dismissed out of hand by wicked and rebellious creatures. And that holy revulsion of his being against that which is a contradiction of his holiness issues in 
a powerful outpouring of divine displeasure. That is, God hates sin. And God must and will punish sin. And that's what's happening on the cross. God is punishing sin. The Bible talks about wrath. And the Bible talks about propitiation. A rarely used word, but one which is at the very heart of the gospel. Propitiation. You see, the Lord Jesus had no sin of his own. The Father says of him, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There is no taint of sin in him. He has obeyed the law at every point. He has pleased God in every way. There is not even a hint of sin in him. He is utterly blameless. He is the holy and spotless Lamb of God. As one of our hymn writers says, he dies to atone for sins not his own. This was divine punishment, but not because of sins that he had done. It was propitiation. Propitiation means that Jesus was being punished for my sins. One theologian says the doctrine of propitiation is precisely this, that God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he by his blood made provision for the removal of his wrath. So what you have here is God punishing his son so that he would not have to punish his children. I mean, think about that. God punishing His Son so that He would not have to punish His children. In brief, this is what's going on on the cross. This is what the meaning of forsaken is. In almost criminally succinct terms. When Jesus cries, My God, why have you forsaken me? He is being punished for our sins. It's the meaning of forsaken. Now the wonder of it, the wonder of forsaken. So what we want to do is, we want to walk around the cross. We want to walk around the place where the Son of God lies, hangs on the cross, where the Holy One of God hangs between heaven and earth. And we want to gaze with a sense of wonder at the divinely orchestrated spectacle. And, you know, we need to tread carefully because this is sacred ground. It is holy ground. And when we think on these things, we think of them carefully and reverently and submissively and joyfully and with holy awe. And I want to do the best I can to try and explain to you the wonder of this. Let me tell you about the wonder of propitiation. That word I just used a few moments ago. The wonder of propitiation. There was an old minister of the gospel 
from the bygone day, they called him Rabbi Duncan. He said this, he said, do you know what Calvary was? I mean, do you know what Calvary was? So I'll tell you what Calvary was. It was damnation. And he took it lovingly. Jesus was experiencing damnation. He was enduring hell. He was suffering punishment. And holy, heavenly anger was being poured out on the head of Christ. That's what was happening on Calvary. On Calvary, the fury of the wrath of the Almighty God was being poured upon Jesus, being loosed upon the head of Christ. It was the furious wrath of the Almighty God, not simply the wrath of God, but the fury of the wrath, and the furious wrath, not simply of God, but of the Almighty God, being poured wave upon wave upon the head of the sinless Son of God. Extraordinary. He was, the Bible says, smitten by God. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity and bruised, mind, by the Father. It was the Father who put him to grief. It was the Father who punished him. It was the Father who poured judgment upon him. It's the wonder of propitiation. The awesome reality of this wrath-bearing work of Jesus. Second Thessalonians speaks about the flaming fire of judgment. It speaks about the vengeance of God. It speaks about everlasting destruction. And that's what's happening on the cross. That's what's being endured by Jesus. This was propitiation. This was wrath bearing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why did he cry that? Why did he ask that? The simple answer is that he was forsaken. That's why he said it. That's why he used that word. That's why he plucked that text from the Old Testament. Because he was forsaken. God forsook God. He was abandoned by his father. And God turned his face away from his son. God left him alone. He was barred from the sunshine of the face of his father. And the father punished him. And the father poured wrath upon him. And spiritually and in every way, the father beat him with many blows. He was shut up into a darkness incomprehensible and unimaginable. A deep darkness and an outer darkness, a total darkness cut off from the light of the face of God. That's what's going on. This is the wonder of propitiation that he did this for us. And when the Son 
looked to the Father for the sunshine of His face, it was not to be seen. It had been turned away from Him. And the smile of the Father was not to be experienced in these moments. And what was to be seen, what was before the Lord Jesus' eyes, was the face of wrath, the face of judgment. Yeah, he was abandoned. And there was no friend to stand with him. And there was no father to bring comfort to him. He was utterly and entirely alone and abandoned. And his back being beaten with blows that should have fallen upon your back. Locked in a dungeon where you should have been. Oh, you say, God would never do something like that. The Father would never do something like that to His Son. And there are heretics in every generation who say things like that. And I'm saying to you that you had better hope God does that. And you had better pray, Lord, please do that to Him. Abandon Him and judge your Son. Please do that to Him. And not to me. Please pour wrath upon him. And not on my head. Please forsake him. And not me. You better pray. Pray that God would indeed do that. And make him take the cup of your wrath. And drink it to its bitterest dregs. And put that cup not to my lips. Let him drink. And though I know in the depths of my being that I deserve no sacrifice like that. Oh, may he do that for me. And the Bible says he did. Staring black and white in front of your eyes. He says. And he cries. And the word cries, oh, it's an impassioned cry. Oh, he cries, why have you forsaken me? He did it. And he was forsaken. That's the wonder. That's the wonder of propitiation. Not surprising then that the darkness pervades everything in those hours. Thomas Manton writes, the sun seemed to be struck blind with astonishment and nature seems to clothe itself in funeral garb as if the, cre the creation dare not witness the suffering of Christ and dare not show its glory whilst Jesus hung and bore our sins. It's the wonder, you see, of propitiation. And then there's the wonder of love. We're thinking about the wonder of forsaken. It's the wonder of love. Martin Luther said, 
when he contemplated these words, when he considered what Jesus said, and he pondered with astonishment the words that escaped the lips of Christ. He says this. He says, I thought to myself, I, I said, does God love me more than he loves his son? I mean, watch and see and understand what the Father is doing to the Son, pouring judgment upon Him, pouring wrath upon His one and only Son. And He's doing it for me to pay for my sins. And the question, it's a legitimate question, does the Father love, this, love me more than He loves His Son, that He would do that for me? Of course, Luther knew, and you and I know, that that's certainly not the case. He does not love us more than he loves the Son. But you understand why he asks that? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That the Father should put the Son to grief for me? How unimaginable that is. That the Father would run him through with the sword of justice. For my sake or for yours? That's almost incomprehensible. I mean, what love that speaks of. In Isaiah 63 it says, In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. In Jeremiah 31, 3, God says, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. God loves us. Isaiah 11.4 says, I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. And I was to them as those who take the yoke from the neck. I stooped and I fed them. The Bible is clear. God loves you. And in each case, those three verses that I quoted, in each case, the Hebrew word is a word that is oh, so, full of, uh, so full of meaning. It, uh, it speaks of the overwhelming force of passion between a man and a woman. If you look up the, the dictionary meaning of the, that word love that's translated love, the Hebrew word behind that word love. It is a word that speaks of the overwhelming force of passion between a man and a woman. And the Bible is saying, God loves you. He's not just mildly interested in you. There is power and passion in the heart of God for you. Oh, he loves you. Oh. Language fails to explain and express the depth and the height and the breadth of the love of God for you. But you gaze at the cross. You consider the crucified one. You hear the cry at the ninth hour. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know that you're loved. Because he did that 
for you. He bore that for you. He was willing to endure that for you because he loves you. And the Father would do this to the Son of his love because he loved you. It's the mystery. It's the wonder of love. That's why Luther said what he did. Does God love me more than him? Understand that question? Well, God doesn't love us more than he loves his son. But the Bible does say he loves us as he loves his son. John 17, 24. Jesus prays that the world might see that you have loved them as you love me. That's how much he loves us. So do you need any greater proof that God loves you? When you were tempted to cry out to him and say, Lord, don't you care that we're drowning? Don't you care that I'm drowning? Don't you care that these waves are threatening to overwhelm me? Don't you care about this? When you're, when you're tempted to pray like that, when your heart says that you have been bereft of divine aid and are abandoned by the Heavenly Father, then you gaze once more upon the cross and you consider one more time the crucified Christ and he said oh my God you love me you love me so it's the wonder of his love John Owen says the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the father the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You consider that? And you know he does. The wonder of mercy. There's more here. I mean, astonishingly, there's more here. It's the wonder of his mercy. There's an old hymn that says there's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. Because we're told that when the Father, when, when the Son cries out, Why have you forsaken me? He is saying that about his enduring forsakenness for a multitude that no man can number. For men and women from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation. First John 2 and 22. John says that Jesus became propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Not every single soul. Because there are those who will reject Christ. And there are those who will be punished for their sins. World without end. But for those who believe. For those who run to him for safety. For all of them, no matter who they are. No matter how deep they sunk in sin, no matter their culture or color, rich or poor, young or old, kings or criminals, obscure or famous, the seemingly righteous or the manifestly wicked, if they trust in Jesus, if they come to him when he calls to them and says, come to me, I'll give you rest. And when they run to him and find rest in him, they find forgiveness in him. They are covered by his blood and they are clothed in his righteousness. And they are his and they're safe. For he dies for them. Men and women and young people and children from all over the world. 
All different backgrounds and nationalities. There's mercy in Christ. There's forgiveness with Jesus. There's grace to be had. And life to be experienced. Oh, it's the Lord Jesus' mercy. That wideness was was promised in the Old Testament. God said He was going to bless all nations through Him. It was affirmed in the New Testament. God is the God of Jews and Gentiles. You can encompass the world with those two terms. There are Jews and then there are Gentiles. And the New Testament affirms the blessing of the gospel of Christ and the unsearchable riches of our Savior. It's for all of them. For people from all of the tribes of this world. Began to be a reality in Acts. And the nations begin to stream just the way it was prophesied. And they begin to stream towards the Lord Jesus. It's fulfilled. You go now to the book of the Revelation. And there you see it. And you see that the plan of God is fulfilled to the letter. And they're all there. People like us. Men and women. From all the nations of the world. Blood-bought people. Those saved by Jesus on the cross. When he said, why have you forsaken me? Oh, they're there now. They're not forsaken. Because he was forsaken. My goodness, what a sight. They're all there. You're there. You're a Christian. Because that gospel, oh, it began to spread. And the stone Daniel talks about, it began to grow. It began to grow. And it grew more and more. And you were brought in as well. Oh, you're a Gentile. But the gospel's for Jew and Gentile. And you've been brought in. And you're amongst the redeemed of the Lord today. And you'll be standing amongst the glorified saints of God on that day. It's the wonder of His mercy. And then it's the wonder of the Trinity. Oh, you keep walking around the cross. And you keep gazing with your physical eyes on the crucified one. And you begin to understand, oh, there's so much more here than I could ever possibly imagine. And you begin to realize this is the Trinity at work. This is the Father pouring wrath out on the Son. This is the Son enduring the wrath of God. This is the Spirit of God enabling Jesus because by the eternal Spirit He offered Himself up. Father, Son, and Spirit working in glorious harmony to save your soul. How absolutely astonishing is that? The triune God, the mysterious Trinity working to save people like us. My goodness. That's just absolutely astounding. And there's so many other facets to this Trinitarian mystery at Calvary. I mean, how can God forsake God? How can the Father, the Father forsake the Son? The first person of the Trinity forsakes the second person of the Trinity. That can't be, but it is. How can Jesus, the God-man, die and experience the second death, that second death about which we are so fearful, that second death which terrifies us, but the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, dies experiences separation from God. How can that be? You say, well, He's also a man. Yes, but He's one person, two natures, and one person. How can Jesus say, why? Have you forsaken me? I don't 
I don't understand this. Luther also said, God, forsaken of God, who can understand it? I understand that. We understand why he says that. But you know, Benjamin Warfield, the great Presbyterian theologian, said, Christianity is unembarrassed supernaturalism. So many sad folk in this world who have in their world views no place for the supernatural. They have no place for God. Thomas Jefferson took his Bible and cut out all the supernatural bits. That's the founding nation, the founding father of a great nation. And he cuts out of his the audacity. The sheer, unmitigated audacity to do that to the Word of God. Shame on you. Cut out all these bits of the supernatural. Oh, you, you cut out the supernatural parts. And you don't have Christianity. Because Christianity, as Warfield said, is unembarrassed supernaturalism. What's going on the, on the cross is that which is utterly beyond the realm of the natural and the material and the visible and the earthly. This is a supernatural event. This is God at work in extraordinary ways. And we step back and we bow and we adore. And the meaning and the wonder and lastly, the implication. The implication. Top lady. Uh, the implications. The first, first implication is security. If you're a Christian. And you've trusted this Jesus who cried out on your behalf. Father, why, God, why have you forsaken me? Then, then you're secure, you see. Top lady wrote. Uh, if thou... Hast my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine. Payment God cannot twice demand, first at my wounded surety's hand and then again at mine. A lot of verbiage there probably you and I would miss, but what he's saying is if God poured wrath upon Jesus, if God punished Jesus for me, he surely cannot not just will not, but cannot demand punishment again from me. So, if you're a Christian, then you're secure, you see. And so tomorrow when you fall, because you're going to. Tomorrow when you sin, because you will. You confess your sin to God. And He is faithful and just to forgive you. It's the right thing then for God to forgive you. It's the just thing for Him to forgive you. Why is that? Well, because Jesus died. Because he paid the price. That's why you see Christianity is such a glorious thing. It's not a drag, the way some people think. It's not a miserable religion. It's a religion of joy. Of unspeakable and unimaginable joy. Because you're secure. You'll never be forsaken. On the last day when you stand before God, as you will, 
Every one of us here, there's not a single solitary person here who will not stand one day before the Almighty God. If you're a Christian and you stand before God, you'll be able to stand like this. Bold shall I stand in that great day. For who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved from these I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. I'm safe. You're safe. You're a Christian. So security. And then closely related safety. I'm thinking now about struggle and suffering in this world. You'll not be forsaken. On your darkest day, in the depth of whatever pit you find yourself, you must never imagine that no one understands. You must never think that Jesus doesn't understand. You must never tell yourself that he doesn't sympathize. It is your Savior who cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was truly forsaken. He understands suffering in ways that we couldn't possibly understand. And so you will never be forsaken. He did that so that you, for time and eternity, will never be forsaken. Jesus endured this and suffered this and took this so that for time and eternity during the troubles of life and the endlessness of eternity you will never be forsaken not once never bereft of of divine aid never abandoned to the forces of a wicked world or indeed the judgment of a heavenly judge. And when you feel, when you begin to feel forsaken, you turn to the cross and you hear these words and you say, All is well. I'm secure and I'm safe. Thirdly, I enjoy intimacy with God. I enjoy intimacy with God. You see, what has happened here, what Jesus has done, is to bring us into an intimate relationship with God. We have been transformed, you see, from children of wrath into children of God. We've been transformed from those upon whom the wrath of God rests. And now we are those who bask in the smile of his face. Intimacy. We call him Father, you know. The great God. The creator of all things. The Holy One who is light and in whom there is no darkness. We call him Father. That's what Jesus did for us. We're on intimate terms with our God. In John, John tells us about uh, the Last Supper, where he, at the Last Supper, was leaning back. Translations vary, but it says that he, he, he was leaning back near Christ. The word actually means that, as they did in those days at Supper, you, 
you lean back, you kind of, the small table near the ground, and you sort of lean like that. You don't sit at chairs that would lead you, but you kind of lean back, and, and guests of honor and special people, they would lean back against the host. And in a kind of intimacy that probably, especially men here, we, we would feel uncomfortable with this, but you lean back and place your head upon the chest of the, of the host. So John was leaning back and his, he was very close to Jesus and he put his head on the Savior's chest. That same word that John uses there, John 13, is used in John 1 and verse 18 of the, fa- of the son's relationship to the father. One of the translations has it like this. He was in the bosom of the father. He was that close. And because of Jesus, because he prayed this, because he did this, because he suffered this, You're in the bosom of the Father, you see. You're close to God. And you call Him Abba Father. No matter what you suffer, you are so blessed. And lastly, salvation. You tell me now. Do you want nothing to do with God? Well, you want nothing to do with God you'll get your wish and he will abandon you and he will forsake you and he will leave you to yourself though he will not leave you alone he will leave you to yourself and you will have the devils and the demons for your companions and the wrath of God for your punishment You don't want to have what you think you want to have. You think you want nothing to do with God. I'm telling you, you don't want that. You see, there's a way out of your sinfulness and there's a way out of your trouble. There's a way to safety and there's a path to life and there is a door out of the dungeon in which you find yourself this morning. And that way, and that path, and that door, someone is Jesus, who is both able and willing to save you from your sin and rescue you from the wrath which will so surely come upon you. He'll give you life, and He'll take you to His heaven. And if you trust in Him today, You'll be safe for time and for eternity. Let's pray. Our Father, save souls today, we pray. And help us, oh, help us, we pray, to love the Lord Jesus more and more and glory what he has done for us. In his name we ask it. Amen. In a moment we're going to celebrate the table and if you're a Christian,
You're welcome to partake with us. And if you're not a Christian, we welcome you. Oh, we'd love you to watch and see what the Lord Jesus means to us. But first, we'll sing 272, and we'll just sing the first three stanzas. We'll close the service later with uh, the last stanza, but we'll stand to sing 272, just verses 1 to 3. Let's stand to sing, please.
little while ago we, uh, we heard from Femi and Ola and they told us their testimonies uh, ahead of their officially becoming members. And um, today we officially bring them into membership and um, going to do that in two ways. Brother Roger is going to um, pray for them and pray for us in our ongoing family relationship with them as we serve the Lord here. And then two, later you're going to yourselves officially, you know, give them uh, a warm, hearty handshake, a, a Christian hug, or maybe, you know, if you hearken back to the New Testament, a holy kiss, I don't know, whatever you feel moved to do. But um, and we're, not, we're not bringing them into membership because, uh, well, because we need Femi, you know, you saw him doing stuff here, and not just because of that. Well, we, we welcome them into membership because we love them. And uh, they've been with us from the get-go, you know, from, from the park. They were in the park with us. And, um, and we love what God has been doing in their lives, saving them and sanctifying them, and in His providence bringing them here uh, to be with us so that we might work together in the cause of Christ. So with thanksgiving... And praise, we welcome them into membership officially and we'll ask Roger to uh, lead us in prayer for them. Pray. Father, we do thank you for the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, that church which he ransomed with his own blood. We thank you, Father, for each one that is a part of that church. We are here the local church and part of that even though we are also part of the universal church but we thank you especially for our own congregation and we thank you this morning that we officially welcome Femi and Ola into membership with us as we've been reminded they're not new uh, they've been with us almost from the beginning and we thank you for that thank you we've already seen their willingness to serve and be involved in the uh, the various aspects of the church work. And we pray for them, Father, that you would continue to bless them and to use them. We thank you for them. We pray for their family also. You'll give them much grace and wisdom, enable them to uh, raise their uh, three children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And Father, grant that they will be a, a blessing and an encouragement to us. And we pray that we also will be a great blessing and encouragement to them. So be with them, Father. Bless them, use them, enable them, we pray by your grace, to bring glory to your name. And we thank you for them. We welcome them in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And now the word of God. I received from the Lord. I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'll ask uh, Brother AJ to come and lead us in thanksgiving the body of Christ.
God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have heard this day of, of wonderful things. We have heard of your love for, for your people. And that your Son would be forsaken for us. That he would bear the wrath for our sins. That he would die on the cross. Oh, such wonderful, such marvelous love. And we do praise the name of our blessed Father. And we do praise the name of the blessed Son as well. As we come to the table, as we again partake of this emblem, we are reminded of the body of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that hung on the cross bore the wrath that we deserve, accomplished salvation for us. Oh, we are so thankful. Oh, inflame our hearts to love you more, Father, to love our Savior more. Oh, help us to rid those besetting sins in our lives. Help us to tear them, be mindful of our Savior died for them on the cross. And Father, help us to serve you more faithfully, to take this message, this message that there is salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Take it to our neighbors, our co-workers, our families. And Father, that you would use us to draw in your love, to use us to save, to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Amen. The Lord Jesus said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood let's do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me I'll ask our brother Roger to come now again and lead us in thanksgiving for the blood Father we've been reminded this morning of the cost of our salvation Lord Jesus, bearing your wrath against our sin and also giving his life, pouring out his blood and that was literal blood that he shed. And we thank you, Father, that that blood that literal there uh, cleanses us and it's uh, power and application. We thank you that the blood is precious and it continues to cleanse us from all sin. Oh, Father, even this day we've sinned against you Yet the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse from sin. Oh, we thank you for that precious blood. We pray it might be precious to us. We might delight in it, rejoice in it, be amazed at the Son of God being willing to shed his blood for our redemption. Oh, Father, we give you thanks. We cannot understand fully all that was involved. But we just thank you again for that love and that blood that was shed. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
The Lord Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.